Good morning, everybody. How are you? Happy Father's Day, indeed. You know, Father's Day is one of those days, isn't it, that, uh, and we were, we were saying this in our pre-service prayer, uh, Father's Day is one of those days that, uh, that, that for some is, is, a, is a happy and, uh, and joyous day. And, uh, and for others, perhaps it's a painful day. For others, perhaps uh, a, a reminder of a relationship um, that is uh, frayed or broken. Or, or perhaps it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a time when some remember that actually they didn't have a father. Or perhaps it's a time um, where some perhaps are reminded that they want to be a father, but they can't be a father. And so uh, Father's Day has uh, many different uh, effects, many different impacts on us. And so I want to remind us before we start this morning that regardless of where we are in our lives, regardless of the relationships that we have with, uh, with father figures or men in our lives, regardless of that situation for you this morning, I want to remind you as we've sung here this morning that we each have the same good father in heaven, the same father uh, who says in Isaiah 61 uh, that he is the one that binds up the brokenhearted. He proclaims freedom for the captives and releases from darkness the prisoner. This is our good, good father, our heavenly father, and regardless of uh, our relationships uh, on earth, we each have the same father in heaven. Is that good? Is that good? So good, so good. Well, today is Father's Day, and, uh, and we're celebrating uh, men or, uh, or masculinity. Now, here's the thing, church. We don't usually do, in this church, we don't usually do uh, preachers, messages, sermons, whatever you want to call them, uh, that are sort of uh, tailored around Mother's Day or Father's Day. We don't usually do that. And the reason for that is because uh, I often uh, think that God is speaking into this church and is saying, uh, is saying something specific for a specific time in a specific season, and, uh, and to try and bend our teaching series uh, around sort of uh, these, uh, these occasions, these, these things in our calendars, um, I, I usually don't think that that is um, more important than what God is, uh, is, is speaking through, uh, through what he wants the teaching series to be. Is that all right? Yeah, so, so usually, usually we don't do Mother's Day preachers, we don't do Father's Day preachers. This year, however, it is different. It is, it is different because uh, we're in a, I don't know if anyone has noticed this, but we are in, uh, at the moment, a society that is, uh, that is uh, engaging in, or, uh, or has had thrust upon it, a cultural crisis. Uh, a, a cultural crisis and, uh, and so many questions are being asked, questions uh, that perhaps uh, not too long ago, um, the answers to these questions was kind of secured, and, and we all sort of knew the answers to these questions. But questions are being asked at the moment, and so we're, we're hearing things like, um, uh, like, who are men and women? What is a woman in society? What is a man in society? Uh, and uh, and, and, and what, are these, uh, what are these things? What are these constructs? That, we, uh, that we're aware of. And, uh, and so there is a search for truth, yeah? Anyone recognize in society there is a search for truth, there's a search for, for answers to these questions. And, uh, and at the moment, I don't know if you've realized or recognized, but we're hearing new answers, 
new answers to these questions that we've never heard before. These are, these are new, uh, new concepts to us, and so we're hearing things like, you know, well, a woman is someone who identifies as a woman. And, and, and we're hearing that there is, in fact, no difference between men and women, that they're the same. And, and we're hearing things like masculinity is toxic. And we're hearing things like, uh, like gender comes from how you feel. These are some of the answers to the questions that we're hearing in society. And so, uh, so I believe uh, that, that God is calling his church, that the church needs to speak up to give at this moment in time the biblical perspective and the biblical, what the Bible has to say about these, the answers to these questions. Now, what the Bible says can be accepted or rejected, but it still must be preached. Hey, it still must be preached. And so today... As part of and in keeping with the series that we're in, which, uh, which as you'll know, if you've been here, uh, is, uh, is, is asking these questions. What does the Bible say about X? What does the Bible say about this or that? And today, the question that we're looking at is, what does the Bible say about godly men? What does the Bible say about godly men? Now, why godly? Why not just men? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because church... The answers to these questions and what we're going to talk about this morning, it needs to start here. It needs to start in the church. Here's the design for the church. Here's how God designed the church to be. God designed the church such that we would inherit and adopt the culture from heaven. Yeah, that we would adopt kingdom principles, and we do that by, uh, by reading the Bible, by observing what it is that God uh, is speaking to us, that we would, uh, we would inherit and inhabit kingdom principles, and that those kingdom principles would leak out and influence the world. That's what the church is designed for. That's how God designed it to be, um, because kingdom culture is defined by God who created the world, yeah? And so culture comes down from heaven through the church and out. Worldly culture is defined by the enemy, right? That's, that's true. That's true. That's uh, things that we see around us that are antithetical to what God speaks. These are designed by the enemy to cause confusion. And that's why the enemy in the Bible several times is called the ruler of the world. Yeah? It's a temporary uh, title uh, that speaks of Satan's, the enemy's influence into our world. Now, we know that the world doesn't belong to Satan, hey? Yeah, but currently the influence of Satan is rife in the world and will be until such a time as the Lord comes back, yeah? And so that is why the Bible refers to the enemy several times as, uh, as uh, the ruler of the world. And so we inherit kingdom culture, we inhabit it uh, in the church, we, we outlive it, uh, we do our best to adhere to it, and then the, the idea is it leaks out into society and influences society. What's not supposed to happen is society defines culture that leaks into the church. That's, what, that's not what the way around is supposed to go. And so, uh, so we need to start giving the biblical answer to some of these questions. And so we're going to start that today. What does the Bible say about godly men? Uh, now next week... We're looking at the question, what does the Bible say about godly women? And I'm sorry that doesn't align with Mother's Day. All right? You're going to have to forgive me on that. We can't wait a full... When's Mother's Day? March, isn't it? We can't wait until March. Uh, and so, uh, so we're going to do that next week. 
Now, I just want to say before we start, all right, that uh, gender-specific sermons can feel, if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, right, let's be honest, it's not on you, uh, can feel exclusive, yeah? Do we know that? Can feel exclusive. But I want you to know this morning that these principles that we're about to speak through, they apply to both men and women. They apply to all of us, and so, uh, so I want you to understand that. Uh, but the way that it's framed this morning is towards men, but they're for everyone. Is that all right? Yeah? And so if you're a woman in this place, put your hand up if you're a woman in this place. So good, so good. You need to hear this message twice. You need to hear this message twice this morning, once for yourself, Once for yourself and how these principles apply to you uh, as a daughter of the Most High. Uh, But you need to hear this message a second time this morning for the men in your life. Husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, people, men in this church to help and encourage them, us, me, to be the men that God has called us to be, yeah? Because the enemy, you need to know, is on the prowl to steal, kill, and destroy and to rob society of godly men and women. He's a liar, he's a deceiver, and so we must be alert and on guard. That's the preface to the message this morning. Now we're looking across the whole Bible, right, to try and find out what the, what the Bible says about men, um, and so we're looking for timeless and enduring principles in both the Old and the New Testament, we're not wanting to focus specifically on a single, uh, a single verse uh, or scripture and sort of build a theology around that. Uh, that's not how this works. Uh, and we certainly don't want to cherry pick verses from the Bible to try and uh, bolster a, uh, a view and an opinion that comes and originates from us, do we? No, we don't. And so we're trying to look across the Bible uh, to find, uh, to find uh, the, the answer to this question, what is a godly man? But we're going to base ourselves this morning in, uh, in uh, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 2, 2 to 3. I'm going to read it for you. The context is this. This is King David on his deathbed, nearly, uh, talking to Solomon, who is his son. And David says this, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as is written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Now, David in this time, as I say, is talking to Solomon, who is about to take over David as king of Israel, right, as leader of a people. And so David is giving Solomon his final words of wisdom. And David spends 12 verses speaking to Solomon on his deathbed. But the first thing he says is this, hey, Solomon, uh, be strong, act like a man, act like a man. And so immediately, we see the isolation of a role, don't we, yeah? We notice that, we recognize that in Scripture. This is what you should act like. David doesn't say to Solomon, act like a good person. He doesn't say, act like a righteous person. He doesn't say, act like an adult. He says, act like a man. There's a fascinating scripture in Genesis 1.27. I'll read it for us. It says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, 
he created them. Male and female, he created them. God creates two distinct categories of people, yeah? Male and female, men and women. And the Bible goes through and it explores the characteristics and the roles and responsibilities of these two categories of people, men and women. And Solomon was created as a man. And so David says, act like a man. Here's an interesting revelation that I, that I got this morning, uh, not this morning, this week. Act like the person God created you to be. Act like the person God created you to be. Now, this actually transcends gender anyway. This transcends gender. But you are designed to act like the person that God created you to be, yeah? As I say, beyond gender. What is the reason God created you? What did God create you for? God knows why he created you. Do you know? Do you know why God created you? Jeremiah 1.5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. See, we spend our lives, church, don't we? And, and I, I say this from the platform, I think every week. We spend our lives trying to understand more of the nature of God, more of his will for our lives, more of, uh, more of him, more of uh, who God is. But we also have, uh, have a journey, have a pursuit to understand more of ourselves. Yeah? More of who God created us to be because our destiny was set in place before we were born. God spoke to us before we were born. Our spiritual selves existed before our birth and our spiritual selves will exist long beyond our earthly bodies. Yeah? Do we know that this morning? Yeah? And so the question is, do you know who God called you to be? Do you know who God called you to be? And are you on a journey to get closer to who that is? It's a challenge, isn't it? And so for Solomon, it starts with this. Act like a man. Act like a man. Who's heard the phrase... You're going to get me in trouble, this bit. Who's heard the phrase man up? Man up. Man up. Society, uh, society doesn't like the phrase man up. I googled the phrase man up. You know what I found when, uh, when, I, when I googled the phrase man up? I found every single, every single uh, link on, uh, on Google, on the first page of Google, every single link uh, was, uh, was an, uh, to an article uh, or otherwise telling me how bad it is to use the phrase man up, how toxic it is to use the phrase man up. Anyone find that interesting? Is that surprising to anyone? No, it's not surprising to me. Society says the phrase man up is toxic, but what does it mean? What does it mean to man up? What does it really mean? What do we mean when we say man up? And, uh, and I believe when I use the phrase man up, I'm saying act like a man. And so I don't think it's harmful to encourage men to man up. I don't think it's harmful to encourage men to man up as long as we know what we really mean when we're saying it. And we're not talking about burping loudly. And we're not talking about building a shed. And we're not talking about turning on the barbecue. All those things are really important. <laughs> but we're not talking about those 
things. The Bible gives a clear indication of what it means to act like a man. The Bible gives a very clear indication of what it means to man up. And we're going to look at that in 1 Kings uh, chapter 2. Here we go. David says, So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. The first part of being a godly man, the first uh, principle we have this morning is this. A godly man is an obedient man. A godly man is an obedient man. I had an interesting thought this week. And it's this, every person is obedient. Every person is obedient. Yeah, I'll explain what I mean. Every person is obedient to something. Obedience by itself, in fact, is not a virtue. What matters is who or what we are obedient to. Yeah? See, a naughty child is disobedient to their parents, yeah? But they're obedient to their own will and what they want to do. Yeah? A criminal in prison is disobedient to the law, but they are obedient to the morality and what they've said is right. A Christian in China is disobedient to the law in China because it is illegal, but they are obedient to God. Every person is obedient to somebody or something. Everybody has an ultimate authority in their lives, values and principles that we inherit from somewhere. And whatever that authority is, whatever you place at the highest, uh, at the highest uh, pinnacle of your life that you inherit your value set from, that is your God. That is your God. And so it is not enough to be obedient It is not enough to be obedient. The question is, who are you obedient to? Who are you obedient to? Are you obedient to the God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth? Or are you obedient to some other random arbitrary authority, perhaps yourself? Obedience by itself is meaningless, and that's why David says, be obedient to God. A godly man is obedient to God. And we see this all over the biblical narrative as well. Uh, Joshua 1.7, God says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Because we're called to be people of integrity. The commands of God must be our highest authority on every issue. And this is really hard, isn't it? This is really hard. See, uh, not obeying God on some issues, but obeying God on other issues means we're not really obeying God, does it? It means we're obeying something else that just so happens to sometimes align with what God says. And so we're not obeying God. Acts Acts 5, 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the highest priests, who said... We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than human beings. 
even in this situation, the apostles were facing trial. They were, they were, they were in front of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of a court of religious leaders, and, and they were brought in. They were, they were in trouble. Uh, they, were, you know, they were facing penalty, and, uh, and even so, even in the face of trouble, the apostles said, no, 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 it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about that. We don't obey human beings. We obey God. We obey God. Galatians 1.10 Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Church, on the day of judgment, and there is a day of judgment, on the day of judgment, we'll be asked to give an account for every deed. Romans 14, 12 tells us that. And on the day of judgment, we will face a judge. And that judge will not be a council of human beings. The judge will be God. We will stand before God. He is the person to whom we will give an account for every deed. Is that encouraging or is that, uh, what's the opposite of encouraging? Terrifying. I heard terrifying. <laughs> it's not terrifying. It's a bit terrifying. A godly man is obedient, yes, but a godly man is obedient to God. Yeah? Let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, David continues, And keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the book of Moses, so that you may prosper. Just give me a second, because I've lost my place in my Bible. Keep his decrees, his commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper. Now you might think, well, that's the same thing, isn't it? You're just saying the same thing uh, again. That's just obedience, isn't it? We're just obeying God. And yes, we are, absolutely, but there is a new element at play here. See, David says you must keep his uh, commands and his laws and regulations so that you may prosper. See, we obey the commands of God first and foremost because he is God and we are not. But secondly, we do so in the faith that it is good for us, yeah, that we may prosper. And I'm not talking just about um, uh, material prospering or, or, or prospering in wealth uh, and, and having a bigger bank account, but that we would prosper in life, that our lives would be enriched and would be better for keeping the, co uh, the commands and the laws of God. And we know that God has plans to prosper us, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. When we talk about faith in church, we're talking about a multitude of things, aren't we? It's a, it's a, it's a deep level, it's a big, big topic, faith. So initially, and first and foremost, we're talking about our faith in Christ, aren't we? Yeah? Our faith in Jesus, that he, he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did, and that he is the, the salvation that we receive. And by his death on the cross, all our sin is taken care of. And by his resurrection three days later, the, uh, the death is defeated, yeah? This is our faith. This is the baseline level of, of faith in God. And, uh, and this is the faith that will get us into heaven by the skin of our teeth. But for a godly man, the baseline of faith is not enough. 
There is an additional faith required that God's decrees and commandments will bring about what is good and to have faith in those decrees and commandments that he will work all things together for the good of those that love him. So the challenge is we might have faith in God's plan for our ultimate salvation, but do we have faith in God's word over our lives? Do we have faith that God has a plan and purpose for our lives, perhaps regardless of the fact that we might not be able to see it ourselves, yeah? Who's been in that place? Some of us are in that place right now. Faith is a, is, is a huge thing, and it's, a, it's an entire sermon series by itself. And I just want to highlight um, instances of faith that we see in the Bible. And Hebrews 11 gives a brilliant uh, account of many different people throughout the biblical narrative that have exercised extreme faith in what God has said, uh, in, uh, despite the fact that it, doesn't, it simply doesn't make any sense. Hebrews 11:17 By faith Abraham when God tested him offered Isaac as a sacrifice God commanded Abraham to take Isaac his only son up a mountain and sacrifice him on an altar Now this church is weird and it's awful there is uh, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, does not, uh, does not condone in any way child sacrifice. That's a, that's a, that's a demon thing. And yet, um, that's how the story goes, that God required that of Abraham. And so Abraham did so in faith. He took Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. Because Isaac had, uh, sorry, Abraham had faith that God was going to do something else. That there, God would do something and so all he could do was, uh, was, was obey God. How hard must that be? How hard must that be? To take his only son, the one through whom he was promised to be the father of many people. And by his faith, it was God that provided the way. And at the last minute, God provided a sacrificial uh, ram, I think it was, or you, or lamb, something of that uh, sheepy, fluffy nature, anyway. And uh, Isaac was spared, and the lamb was sacrificed to God because God provides the sacrifice. Hey, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus, by the way. Uh, Hebrews eleven twenty nine. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. You might recall the, the Exodus, where, where, where uh, the Israelites were... Uh, were, were um, running away from slavery in Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and, uh, and God instructs Moses to, uh, to, to stab his staff in the, in the, in the water and the, and the water uh, parts and the Israelites, hundreds, thousands, they, 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 they walk through on dry land. But how scary, church, must it be to observe before your eyes Water, an extremely large body of water part right before you and be told, don't worry, you can go through and it'll all be fine. It won't come down on you, I promise. The faith, the faith, the extreme faith. And so it was by that faith that they crossed on dry ground. Hebrews 11.30, when the walls of Jericho fell after the, oh, sorry, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. As the Israelites were going to the city of Jericho where God had promised them that they would be victorious in battle and they, they came across these walls and, and God said, 
and told them to walk around the walls, walk around the city seven times, once a day for seven days. Not attack the walls, not try and find a weak link in the walls, not bombard them with artillery or any of that stuff. Just walk around them. And then on the seventh day, blow the trumpets, the walls will come down. The faith, because that doesn't make any sense, does it? That doesn't make any sense, but it is by faith that the walls of Jericho fell. Faith is the gift that allows us to be obedient to God, not reluctantly, but safe and secure in the confidence that what he speaks is good. When we can't see why, when we can't see what's coming, we are obedient to God regardless. Hebrews 11, in fact, starts with this uh, with this amazing statement, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, that God will bring us through the storm, that God will finish what he has started, that his promises will be yes, and our response is amen. So the question is, are you hearing from God for your life and family? Are you able to put your faith in that plan that God has given you? I wonder, it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. And let me tell you, church, from personal experience, it's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. It's not easy. I'm not preaching something that I think, oh, this is easy. Just go away and do this. You'll be all right. When Sam and I started leading this church, we did so. We did so because of faith in God's plan. Because we'd heard from God for his plan for our family to put aside our own preconceptions, to put aside our own plans and ideas and to say, God, you know, we, we are not sure about this. We've got no idea about this. We can't see the, the plan here. Don't get it. Don't understand. But by our faith in you, we will trust you. A godly man is a man of faith. Now, the final thing that we learn from David, the final thing we learn from David is actually the first thing David says. And David says to Solomon as he's on his deathbed, he says, be strong. See, David is speaking to the person who will be the next king of Israel, the next leader of a people. And so David is telling Solomon to be strong in his leadership. And what does it mean to be strong? Are we talking about physical strength? Being able to bench 225? No, not really. Are we talking about uh, strength of will? Or perhaps strength of heart? The Bible speaks a lot about strength. The Bible speaks a lot about strength. And there's a, there's a, there's a phrase uh, that we see over and over again in the Bible. It's a recurring phrase, and it's this, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Strength is paired with courage uh, time and time again. In fact, in Joshua 1, when God is giving instructions to Joshua, who is about to take over from uh, Moses um, in in terms of uh, leading God's people, God says to Joshua four times in one chapter, be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous because you will lead. Joshua 1.7, be strong and very courageous. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.18, only be strong and courageous. We're called to be strong. 
We're called to be courageous because what God is calling us to do will require courage. Yeah? I don't know if you've already been in a situation in your life where what God is calling you to do, the plan that he's set in front of you, requires something of you, requires a strength and a courage in order for you to go through with that. Because we're called by God to do scary things. To take the gospel into places and people in our community that are far from God. We're called to uphold God values in what some term a post-Christian world. What we're called to do requires strength and courage. We're called to be strong in our obedience and faith. Not to be influenced by the world, but to influence the world. Amen? We're all called to be leaders of strength and courage, men or women. But there is a role. There is a role that men are called to. And it's a responsibility and a, and a burden that God places on men specifically. And, uh, and this, this bit might get me in, in trouble. Because I'm popular these days. But it's biblical. Men, husbands, fathers, they are called to lead their household. Now this is a principle that we see throughout the biblical narrative, Old and New Testament, Ephesians 5.23, 1 Corinthians 11.3, 1 Peter 3.1, 1 Timothy 3.5, and countless more. Men are called by God to lead their household. And I want to read for us a passage of Scripture. It's Ephesians 5.22. And it says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so we also, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Here's the challenge if you're in this room and you are a husband. Your wife is called by God to submit to you. That's what the Bible says a number of times, in fact. And you are called to submit to God. But here's the challenge. Are you in a position where it is good for your wife to submit to you? See, the man who reads Ephesians 5.22 and responds, this is brilliant. This is awesome. Sweet. She's got to do everything I say. This is amazing stuff. Brilliant stuff. I'm in charge. I would suggest that that man has some work to do. I would suggest that man has some work to do. When I read Ephesians 5.22, I am terrified. 
I am absolutely terrified. And I find myself thinking, Lord, would you help me? Would you transform me? Would you turn me into someone who is worthy for my wife to submit to me? Because, Lord, if you're calling her to submit to me, then I have some work to do. I have some work to do. Don't let me lead my family in my own strength, because I have none. Don't let it be my will, because that's rubbish. Lord, before she submits to me, would you help me to unconditionally and wholeheartedly submit to you? Now, we need to properly understand Ephesians 5, 22 to 28. Because it's a scripture that might irritate you. It's a scripture that you might like to ignore if possible. Because our society has developed, listen church, an unhealthy and unbiblical view of what it means to submit. An unhealthy and unbiblical view of what it means to submit. We associate submission with all kinds of negativity, with hierarchy, with control, even possibly with abuse. And all those things are indeed very possible. So this is why we've got to pray. We've got to pray for marriage. We've got to watch out. Because all those things are indeed very, very possible. If the submission is to a boy. Without a rooted, obedient, faithful submission to the authority of God. But that isn't biblical submission. None of those ideas of negativity are biblical submission. To understand What Paul is instructing in Ephesians 5.22, we need to understand the doctrine of submission in the Trinity. You know, I don't know if if any of you find yourself thinking when I teach on uh, Christian doctrines, right? Really core concepts, really fundamental stuff. And you're like, you might be there like, how's this helping me in my life? Why does it matter what the Trinity is like? Why does it matter if it's like an egg or like an ice cube or, or whatever it might be? That doesn't help. That doesn't help me live my life. But listen, church, in order to understand the Bible, we need to understand the Bible, yeah? We need to understand core uh, doctrines. And you won't understand Ephesians 5.22 unless you understand the, the doctrine of submission in the Trinity. Luke 22.42 says this, Father, if you are willing, Jesus says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, God the Son, submits his will to God the Father. One member of the Trinity submitting to the other member of the Trinity. There is no hierarchy in the Trinity. There is no uh, difference in value in the Trinity. There is no abuse. There is no control. There is no resentment. There is no jealousy. There is no narcissism or arrogance. Those things aren't present in the Trinity. There is only perfect love and a desire to see the aligned will of the Trinitarian Godhead come about in order to see the salvation of the world. And this is the submission that we're called to. This is the submission that we're called to. 
And so I find this to be a real challenge for men. A real challenge. And I, as I say, I'm terrified of this verse. I'm terrified of what that calls me to and living up to that. And I think that it's healthy for us to have a, um, a healthy appreciation of the standard that we're being called to. But there's more. Paul writes, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do you know what Christ did for the church? He died for us. He went to the cross for us. He put aside his own life for us. He put our needs above his own. That's the love that Christ has for the church and that's the love that husbands are to show their wives. This is strong and courageous leadership. This is what we're called to. And so, you know, I believe that God is calling a generation to become a generation of godly men and women. And specifically today on Father's Day, I want to highlight men that are obedient to God, men that are of faith in God, and men that are strong and courageous leaders. You know what the great thing is about being here, about being on this platform? is that we are already in a church that is filled with godly men. I love that. You know, when, when we were, where were we? It doesn't matter. When we were away somewhere and we were having, Sam and I were having dinner together, we were just, we were just thinking around, around the people in this church and just thinking how, how fortunate we are. And, you know, we were, sorry about this, but we were naming individuals by name. It was just me and Sam, don't worry. And we were just saying, you know, we are so fortunate to be in a church with these people to be alongside these people in our, in our journeys, to be able to learn from these people, these great husbands, these amazing fathers, these awesome women, these fantastic mothers that we can learn from. We can learn from. And so we're so fortunate to be in a church filled with godly men. And so I genuinely believe God is saying to us, and I'm not just saying this because it's a nice way to end a message, I genuinely believe that God is saying to the men in this church, you're doing great. Keep going. Because I'm proud of you. There needs to be more. There needs to be more strong men of God. There needs to be more men obedient to God, more men faithful in God, and more men that are strong and courageous leaders. This influence needs to grow, and that's why at the start, we talked about how the culture uh, starts in heaven, comes through the church, and influences the world. And so this needs to grow. There needs to be strong men in society. And so I'd like to finish, if we can, in prayer. Is that all right? I don't know how you found this message this morning. I hope there's been a nice mix of encouragement and conviction because I think that makes a healthy message. I think that makes a healthy message. If we're, if we're just walking away from this place thinking, oh, yeah, I'm so good. I'm encouraged. This is awesome. That's good. But if we're just thinking that without thinking, oh, you know, I've got some things I need to work on. I've got some things I need to do. I need to spend some time in the presence of my Heavenly Father to get some things straight. If we're not thinking those things, I'd, frankly, I don't think I've done a good job of conveying what I believe God is saying to me. Is that all right? 
So we're going to spend some time in prayer. So I'd like to invite you to stand if you're able because I'd like us to pray for one another. And on this Father's Day, I don't want to be exclusive, and I am going to be exclusive. I want us to pray for men. Is that all right? So if you have men in your life, husbands, fathers, sons, or if, you, uh, if you're next to or around a man, I'd like you just to pray for them, perhaps put your hand on their shoulder or, or whatever it might be. And let's pray for men, for each other. Lord, we thank you, God. We thank you, Lord, that you are the ultimate picture of a father. That you are the one that, uh, that sets the standard. That you are a good, good father. That you are the perfect father. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, your Bible, to help us and to guide us in the ways of being sons and daughters of the Most High. And I just want to thank you, Lord, that I'm in a room filled with men who are desperately trying to be men after your own heart, as you describe David as. And so, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us as we continue on our journey? Would you lead us and would you guide us? Would we be ever trying to be more and more like you? And would you help us, Lord, as your word says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another man. Lord, would you help us to be one another's sharpeners? Lord, would you help us to be one another's accountability? Lord, would you help us to be one another's encouragement? Would you help us to be the ones that say in the right way, in the real way, you need to man up on this one. And Lord, everything we do, would you guide us and ensure that we do it in love. Love for you, amen.